Alright, in 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Hello and welcome everyone to the place to get your music fix. This is the Dispensary Podcast. I'm Phil, accompanied by... Jonah Greenberg. What is up, people? Yes, sir. Good to hear from you again, Jonah. Uh, Just to let everybody know, we are recording this on Good Friday, and uh, this will be posting on April 9th, the day after WrestleMania 34, and there's a good reason for that, but uh, we're doing this off so early because I understand, Mr. Grinberg, you are going to be hanging out in Sin City over the next little while. Uh, that is correct. That is correct. Uh, um, uh, you could say it's it's somewhat of a rite of passage, seeing as how um, by the time Wednesday comes around, um, Wednesday the 4th, that is, for, for those listening, I will officially be 21. Hey. So I am for a little bit of a celebration. Happy uh, belated birthday in advance, my friend. Well, thank you. And uh, do it up, and uh, just remember, as they say, what happens there stays there. Unless you want to talk about it on the podcast, then uh, all bets are off. I'm sure there will be some memories I'll be able to share. Excellent. Well, Jonah, you and I, it's been documented, are both uh, pretty avid and long-standing fans of professional wrestling. And uh, as you well know, whenever there's a birthday live on the air in a wrestling ring, you know somebody is wearing that cake, so I hope the same thing doesn't happen to you. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. To say the least. So, with that being said, uh, we're going to do a music-related show in connection to pro wrestling as the big WrestleMania show is coming up. And uh, I don't know about you, Jonah, but I feel that other than entrance themes and uh, theme songs for the TV shows and pay-per-views. Music has really um, come a long way in the wrestling business and I feel has helped accelerate it into uh, reaching more eyeballs on their product. Would you agree? I would say that is depending on the music because in a lot of ways when it comes to superstar entrance themes, you know, the the music has really taken a backseat. But if it's, let's say, a specific song that is really helping to boost the promotion of a pay-per-view, let's say, you know, or even when one specific song is chosen that is, like, really much becomes the signature for another superstar that was already a huge hit well before then, case in point, like CM Punk when he returned with Cult of Personality by Living Color. Yeah, that's a great example. I'm going to be uh, talking about that one in particular a little bit later on. But uh, just one question for you before I start getting into uh, some of the history like you know I love to do. Is there any songs or artists that you got turned on to because their material was used as somebody's entrance theme or in a wrestling promo of any sort? Good question. Um, Well, I I can say the... Um, the Living Color example, definitely. Um, but also, um, I'd say there was a time and place when I was much more like following week to week without any lagging behind on what was going on in wrestling, and I would download some of the superstar entrance themes. Yep. So, 
one of them, one of the one of the themes was um, by Kofi Kingston before he had joined the New Day. Yeah, yeah, and he was a a full pod Jamaican. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and still to this day, my dad actually likes that theme. Oh, that's amazing. It was a pretty catchy theme, like uh, a good attempt at, you know, cashing in on a reggae vibe, for sure. Oh, yeah, no kidding. I think he was, like, the only superstar that was doing that thing with the music for his entrance. Uh, in WWE, for sure. Um, I've had, um, I've got turned on to several artists and just some individual songs because of their use in the ring or in pay-per-view promos, so to speak, but I think the one that'll capture me the most right off the bat would be Alter Bridge. Oh, yeah. And the reason... Oh, for sure. Yeah, the reason being is that uh, my hometown guy, Adam Copeland, a.k.a. WWE Hall of Famer Edge, came out to Alter Bridge for um, the peak years of his career, and for years... Because they just simply didn't follow the band. I had no idea that it was them doing the music. And once I made that connection and started to familiarize myself with their sound a little bit, I got way into them. Yeah, no, that that, that seems about right, honestly. I mean, um, I could say the same thing in that, that Edge's theme song was my introduction to Alter Bridge, which in turn spawned me listening to... Miles Kennedy's stuff with Slash yep. and Tremonti's solo stuff. So, yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, this just goes to show that the music and the use of it in pro wrestling isn't just all about the showbiz element. That's a big part of it. But it's hooking people in to not only the wrestling product, but to potentially new artists as well. So it's uh, a good cross-promotional tool between the music business and the wrestling business. And Jonah, would you like to hear about uh, how some of this got started? Because it actually branches back a little bit further than WWE, believe it or not. Well, do tell. Okay. um, For those of you who heard or or may not have heard, it was like our third episode of the podcast, I believe, last fall. We did a show on music's relationship with sports and we briefly talked about the impact music had on pro wrestling and I believe I may have mentioned that uh, the first wrestler in WWE to come out to music was Sergeant Slaughter coming out to an old patriotic score I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head but he claims he was the first one in wrestling to do it but I don't think that was quite true First in WWE, yeah, more than likely, but um, he made a big impact nonetheless. Um, Some of the guys who did it before WWE, um, just an example, uh, you know how the Japanese, Jonah, are way ahead of us in terms of technology and gaming and various other things? Yeah. Well, pro wrestling is no different. Um, A lot of wrestlers out there where inventing styles long before they were seen here in North America and were ahead of the curve, and they were the first wrestling people to implement uh, martial arts and MMA into their product to make it look more legit and realistic. And I do believe 
I can't say when it exactly started, but I think the big wrestling promotions in Japan were probably the first to use entrance music. And if you look on YouTube, I found what is labeled as a theme song for Andre the Giant back in like 1977. <laughs> oh, and, God. and it's like a bunch of Godzilla sounds and then playing this like really cheesy, sinister horror music. And it's pretty awful, but I think this may have been one of, if not the first recorded theme songs on record, <laughs> huh. to say the least. And I don't remember this for sure, Jonah, but in North America, uh, Gorgeous George, who completely changed the face of pro wrestling forever with his outlandish gimmick, I believe he may have come to the ring to some type of classical music, just to get under people's skin, I think. Yeah. No, I, I, you know what? I would totally believe that. Yeah. When you think about like all the, especially given the Ric Flair influence later on. Mm-hmm. Ric Flair would use the famous score, which was made famous by Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey, and uh, it's now synonymous with the Nature Boy. In regards to Gorgeous George, I can't fully verify that story because I haven't found any... Uh, video footage of him with audio. <laughs> oh, true. Yeah, no, good point. Because he goes that far back in the day. And uh, a couple of other guys who got onto this train before WWE and I think were highly influential on um, the role music would play in the wrestling business got a briefly shout out to one of the late greats, one of my all-time favorites, Classy Freddie Blassie, who... Um, was a star all over the world, but he went to become a superstar in his wrestling days in Japan. And through his success in Japan and Los Angeles, he recorded an album called King of Men and uh, songs like the one of the same title and Pencil Neck Geek, which actually came out on vinyl, I believe, in uh, 1977. So... Fred Blassie would influence such stars to take the mic and sing their own albums and release their own material, like Jesse Ventura, Jerry the King Lawler, and a man we're going to talk to in length very shortly, the Mouth of the South, Jimmy Hart. Have you ever heard any of the singing from either Jerry Lawler or Jesse Ventura? No, and I'm fearful that I will want to shoot myself. <laughs> Um, I'm not too sure about a lot of the Jerry Lawler stuff. You could probably find it on YouTube, but, uh, Jesse did some singing and stuff in the WWE, but before he arrived there, he was in, uh, his home base promotion, the AWA, the American Wrestling Association based out of Minneapolis, Minnesota. And, uh, Jonah, the AWA had so much talent and potential on their roster and yet they squandered it all. They're like the wrestling equivalent of the record companies turning a blind eye to Napster, so to speak. Like They were that far behind the times with things. However, when uh, Jesse was wrestling for the AWA, he cut a single called Showdown with Mr. V, and some AWA names are mentioned in the song, and I think it came out in like 1981. You can find that on YouTube as I discovered it before this past Christmas, and I highly recommend it because it is very entertaining to listen to. Fuck, all right. And 
As for Jerry Lawler, I know for sure he put out albums of him singing when he was in Memphis. The vocals, I assume, were heavily doctored. As you know, (laughs) I don't know if Lawler was much of a singer. But uh, I saw a YouTube video many years ago, and I think due to obvious copyright claims, it's been taken down. He sang a parody of the Ghostbusters song in a way while cutting a promo on Jimmy Hart, and he called the song Wimp Busters. So they shot a full music video of it, designed their own t-shirts, and the Ghostbusters music track is playing in the background, and Lawler is singing alternate lyrics over it. It's one of the more bizarre things I've ever seen. But uh, I think it got scrapped from YouTube uh, many years ago, unfortunately. So you may have to go to alternate methods to try and see that one. Yeah, no kidding. Fuck. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you, you can't believe some of this, can you? <laughs> no, of course not, man. It's like, that, that's the thing. It's, it's, it's also like um, when Vince McMahon, they, they like to make fun of him for this. Every so often. Yep. Um, it's when Vince McMahon did this little, um, he did this song and dance number during the Slammies one year and oh, had Hulk yeah. Hogan playing like the guitar or the bass. Yep. And, like the song, I think it was called like Stand Up or something. No, Stand and Back. It's just like, Stand Back, that's what it was. Yep. And it's just like, that's the kind of shit that, that memes could have been made out of back in the day if those existed. I agree with you 100%, and um, that's when the WWE, or the WWF at the time, went on a huge musical kick in the mid to late 80s, and we're going to get to that shortly, and uh, I think Vince occasionally gets uh, ribbed about that to this very day, but no doubt that the musical direction WWE would take was definitely borrowed from people like Ventura and Lawler and Memphis Wrestling, which was all about more entertainment-based and gimmick-based, and uh, they embraced music and music videos on a local level before WWE really rose to prominence. Um, Back when we did the homework assignment and I talked about uh, uh, Bruce Springsteen's Born in the USA... I may or may not have mentioned that uh, Bill Watts, who also used to run the uh, Mid-South Wrestling and was a highly influential territory, he used a lot of entrance music as well, and it was either Jim Duggan or Ted DiBiase, like pre-Million Dollar Man, I think came out to Born in the USA and was like the top star in the territory. A couple of other honorable mentions before we get into the real heavyweights of uh, how music took off in wrestling is um, the great tag team of the Midnight Express, who, um, believe it or not, never wrestled together in the WWE, but many other territories. They came out to a disco song uh, by an artist by the name of Giorgio Moroder. And uh, this guy, yeah, this guy was on Casablanca Records, which is the big disco label from New York that uh, used to have Kiss on it. And (laughs) we could probably do like half a podcast on all the crazy Casablanca Records stories. But uh, this song was the definitive theme song of the Midnight Express. And if you watch any of their matches uh, from like WCW, NWA on the WWE Network, that theme is unfortunately dubbed over. (laughs) because unfortunately they probably couldn't get the licensing and all that but that's once again that's 
another aspect of the discussion we'll get to later on. But one more honorable mention before we get into uh, the impact and the acceleration of music WWE would put into wrestling is uh, we can't go with a musically based discussion of pro wrestling without talking about the almighty fabulous Freebirds. Oh yeah. I don't know because you're a younger guy, Jonah, and I don't know how much of historical footage you've watched, but have you ever watched any um, matches or promos of the Freebirds back in their heyday of either uh, WCW or in World Class in Texas? Um, well, I can't say off the top of my head I remember any footage. I mean, in, in passing, maybe, but I mean, it, it, granted, it's very, very old footage. Like, I mean, I've seen footage going all the way back to maybe, like, the 90s or even the 80s, let's say. Yeah. But, um, yeah. The reason I bring up the Freebirds is that um, these guys basically, even though they were pro wrestlers, they were rock and roll, southern rock to the core. And anybody with half a brain could figure out that they, they got their name from the Leonard Skinner song. <laughs> That's just a given. Yeah. And at various times in their career, they would come out to Freebird. And they were just um, three guys from the South just constantly raising hell. And uh, I remember hearing a quote, I think it was from Jim Cornette one time, who said that the Freebirds are the only people in the history of wrestling who had to tone down the volume of their gimmick in the ring instead of outside the ring. <laughs> uh. He said everybody in wrestling... Their gimmick is their personality turned up. Well, the Freebirds were the only ones who had to tone their personality down because <laughs> they were just that raucous and extreme. And in the late 80s, when they were working for NWA, WCW, um, they cut a rock song called Bad Street USA. And Michael Hayes of the Freebirds, who if you've never seen footage of him, this guy was like David Lee Roth meets Bob Seger. <laughs> To say oh the least, God. like just a total Alabama badass. And he ends up singing Bad Street USA and it became one of the most coveted and well-loved uh, theme songs in wrestling history because it was just so cool to see a, a, an outlaw group like that back up their image by writing and performing their own song. And, you know whenever Michael Hayes makes an appearance or whatever, like he used to sing on Monday Night Raw during commercials and you'd always hear that song, Bad Street USA, and it is forever synonymous with the Freebirds. And any hip, stable, or faction, whether they're good guys or bad guys ever since, has borrowed traits from the Freebirds, in my opinion. And Bad Street USA, the song, played a big role in that. Yeah, yeah, no, I makes sense. But uh, with that being said now, Jonah, we have to focus on the juggernaut of the WWE because I will go on to say this and I'll explain a little bit more in a few minutes, but uh, I don't think WWE or WWF at the time rises to the level of prominence that they did without the relationship with music and how it would end up uh, changing their territory. Would you agree with that? Well, case in point, Aretha Franklin uh, singing the national anthem at WrestleMania three. Yes. And then again, 
at WrestleMania 23 when I was lucky enough to be in attendance for that one seven rows from the very back of the stadium, but still. Really? Yes, even though Aretha <laughs> looked pretty rough during that performance, she sounded great. Oh, that's sick. Yeah, and... Um, one funny side note about her is uh, I watched a, an old episode of Primetime Wrestling and Gorilla Monsoon was running down the list of celebrities that were at that WrestleMania, you know, Alice Cooper being one of them. There was a lot. Yep. And he, he talked about how great everybody was and he named them all by name. And then <laughs> he, he talks about Aretha Franklin and he says to Bobby Heenan, he says his co-host... And I don't know if you uh, dealt with uh, Aretha Franklin or not, Bobby, but to me, I thought she really left a lot to be desired. <laughs> oh, my God. So I don't know what went on there, but even though she sounded great in front of the stage and on the mic, apparently she wasn't so fun to deal with backstage. But we'll <laughs> we'll just leave that at that. So, Jonah, some things had to happen before the WWE could fill a football stadium with a record crowd and get such a prominent singer like Aretha Franklin to do um, America the Beautiful, what have you. Um, in the mid-80s, um, this really started with what is known as the Rock and Wrestling Connection. Are you? Uh, I assume you're probably familiar with some of this. Yes. So, just to run down for those who are not, the WWE, because, you know, they were primarily based in New York City... They ran shows at Madison Square Garden about once a month. And uh, they decided March 31st, 1985, they were going to do the inaugural WrestleMania. But to get buzz and to make it a financial success, which it turned out to be, they had to get outside celebrities involved. And they managed to grab quite a few. But the one who really got the ball rolling on the whole thing was Cindy Lauper. Yes. And her boyfriend at the time, David Wolf, was also her manager and had relationships with the big labels and a lot of bigwigs in New York City. So leading up to WrestleMania 1, they ran a television special in uh, sometime in February of 85 called The War to Settle the Score. And... The advertised match was just going to be one-on-one Hogan and Roddy Piper, but there was going to be all this involvement with uh, Cindy Lauper and her crew because uh, there was a segment on this show where Roddy Piper would attack uh, Captain Lou Albano, who was real-life friends with Cindy Lauper, and David Wolf, her manager, to lead up to the WrestleMania main event and stuff like that, and it was crazy and unheard of. But uh, through all of this and David Wolf's doing, uh, WWE gained a partnership with MTV. So MTV basically sponsored the war to settle the score. And this relationship and the involvement of Cyndi Lauper, it made pro wrestling cool and cutting edge to a lot of people at that point in time. And therefore, put more eyeballs on the product, would you not say? And Cindy Lauper, of course, would appear at the first WrestleMania, and it would be a huge success. And the rest is history. Um, through this, music would become to play a dominant role 
in the WWE because at the first WrestleMania and even like, I guess the second one, uh, entrance themes were still not very common. Um, Hulk Hogan had one briefly, uh, that would eventually become the opening of Hulk Hogan's, uh, rock and wrestling cartoon. Okay. And doing my research for the podcast, I did not know this, but you know who wrote that original piano song for Hogan? It was none other than Jim Steinman. Really? Yeah, the genius behind Bat Out of Hell and the Meatloaf compositions and such wrote Hulk Hogan's theme pre-Real American, which we're going to talk about very shortly here. So, without a doubt, this traction led up to getting more musicians on board to make entrance themes for the wrestlers, which became a new mantra for what WWE was all about. They were signing top talent from all the remaining territories. They were going national and no bones about it. Vince McMahon was going to do whatever he could to put these smaller territories out of business. And he was going to change things the way they were done, like eventually giving everybody entrance music. And I think in the mid to late 80s, this would lead to the hire of who I think is one of the more genius session composers who has ever been, and this is Jim Johnston. Ah, yes, okay. I'm glad you fucking... I was, I was, I was gonna mention this as my roach. I have a different roach, but I'm glad you mentioned Jim okay. Johnston now. Okay. Especially since the WWE just released him this year after 32 years. Yeah, yeah, very sad to say the least. I remembered once reading an interview with him how I think he was playing music in like a church band or something or some of his earlier recordings were done in a church basement before he got his own studio. But I mean, they really found a one in a million type of composer who could literally write and perform anything. And Jonah... If you grew up in the, you know, the Hulkamania era, the Attitude era, or the the modern WWE PG era, you've definitely grooved or rocked out to music written by Jim Johnston, and it is stuck in your head. Like you were talking about, your dad even loves Kofi Kingston's theme, right? Like, oh, hell, hell yeah. And I mean, like, we're, we're talking the DX theme, yep. we're talking um, the Undertaker's theme, we're talking... Um, Bret Hart. Bret Hart, yeah. Stone Cold Steve Austin, Brock Lesnar, Kurt Angle, like any legend that has come through there in the past 30 years, unless the music... Well, even some of the songs, which were done by original artists, which we'll get to a little bit later on, Jim Johnston had a help in writing and recording some of that, too. Well, he wrote Triple H's theme song that Motorhead performed. Absolutely, he did. And uh, many, many more, which we're going to get to a little bit later on. But uh, WWE also um, struck gold with two musicians they also met in the mid-80s. The first all being New York City rock blues virtuoso Rick Derringer, who for my money, ended up writing one of the most iconic theme songs in wrestling history, and obviously that is Hulk Hogan's Real American. There you go. And funny story about that, Jonah. Because Hogan was using the Jim Steinman theme for a little while, the song was actually written for somebody else. And a 
the short-lived tag team of Mike Rotundo and Barry Windham actually came out to that theme for a little while. Really? Yeah, before Hogan used it, but it was very brief, though. Like, it's it's hard to find footage. But then when they made the switch to having Hogan use it, the rest is history. So. Oh, yeah. And um, another ace in the hole they had who would uh, come into prominence more years down the road would be a uh, manager that they signed from the Memphis Territory, who was probably the most hated man in that territory, the mouth of the South, Jimmy Hart. Jimmy Hart. So, Jimmy Hart, such a fascinating story with this guy. Um, He actually was a professional musician long before he got into wrestling. And he was... What's that? Same with Hulk Hogan. Yes, Hulk Hogan was a, a bass player and aspired to be an, a, mus- a musician, but he never really made it past like that bar band level, so to speak, even though he was a talented player. And by the way, Jonah, I don't know if you've ever read this online, but two or three years ago, Hogan, like he tends to do, spouted some real serious bullshit saying that he actually auditioned to be the bass player in Metallica and the Rolling Stones. Oh fuck! Yeah, I know. I heard about that. <laughs> oh, and another one. Uh, well, another one here. While we're on the top, sorry, sorry, say that again. Why I don't trust Hulk Hogan? Yeah, well, here's another reason not to trust him, and this relates to music. He also tried telling people because uh, Hogan had a brief uh, stint wrestling in the Memphis territory in I don't know, like maybe like '79 or something like that. And he tried to convince people that Elvis used to pay money to go watch him wrestle at the Mid-South Coliseum, even though he was dead about two years prior to Hogan arriving in the territory. Oh, my God. (laughs) So, anyway, now that we're we're off the Hogan bashing train, Jimmy Hart, as a musician, uh, joined a rock group out of Memphis, where he was born and raised, called the Gentries. And they actually had a chart a single that charted called Keep On Dancing. Which is, I think, a cover of the Bay City Rollers. And Jimmy, throughout his wrestling career, would constantly get teased about this in promos and stuff. But down the road, later in the 80s, he would eventually help um, Jim Johnston write some of the themes in WWE. And Jimmy is... Best known for writing the iconic theme song of the Heartbreak Kid, Shawn Michaels. Of course. So, and throughout all this with the original themes and the outside um, influences and uh, the connections through David Wolf, WWE, um, they got, uh, they signed a deal with uh, Epic Records in the mid-80s, and they would release both the wrestling album and Piledriver, the wrestling album, too, and each one would be wildly successful. Um, The cassette tapes of those, Jonah, were staples of me and my brother growing up. Um, Have you ever had a chance to hear these albums? Because YouTube's probably your best bet nowadays. Well, you know what's funny? I haven't, but you know what I'm looking at right now, Phil? What's that? I am looking right now at a poster with Hulk Hogan promoting the Pile Driver music video. Yep. And the poster is signed by Big John Studd. 
Really? Yeah. That is so weird because I think Stud was gone by then, but that's kind of cool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, to say the least. Um, the wrestling album, it is like, it is so bad that it's almost genius. And between each track, they, they have commentary from Gene Okerlund and Jesse Ventura. And it's absolutely hilarious. <laughs> and that's the first time Real American got like a widespread release. And on uh, Pile Driver, they did a thing where a lot of the superstars sang their own music, which was a bit of a novel <laughs> idea by then. And Rick Derringer played a lot of the music on the album, and he would write and sing the very badass theme for the tag team Demolition. Jeez, at least Randy Savage wasn't rapping by then. Oh, no, 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 no. That that will come much later on. But, yeah, glad you brought that up. We'll, we'll get to that. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> we had uh, Coco Beware singing the song Pile Driver. And, and, you know, laugh if you must, but Coco was one hell of a good singer, believe it or not. Damn. And uh, Honky Tonk Man sang his old theme. I think I may have brought this up. There's the... Robbie Dupree writes uh, the Girls in Cars song, which is just awful, and then they gave it to the team of uh, Strike Force, Martel, and Santana, a Quebecer and a Mexican, both being packaged as California Pretty Boys. <laughs> both great in the both great in the ring, but just a, like a train wreck of a gimmick, if you ask me. But anyway, both of those albums were really successful. The Pile Driver album, they would actually produce music videos for each and every song off that album. And Jonah, I got to bring it up. This is the album where Vince McMahon sang on Stand Back. Ah. Yeah. And um, through this, they uh, in late 1987, after the album got released, they would rent um, part of Caesars Atlantic City out and they would do... The Slammy Awards, and a good chunk of the Slammy Awards would be musical performances from the Pile Driver album. And Jonah, this show is available on the WWE Network. I highly recommend it. You watch it after a few tokes someday because it, it is something else. Oh, jeez. Okay. Yeah. High recommendation from me there. So. <laughs> In the early 90s, as we well know, wrestling took a bit of a dip and uh, some stuff happened out of the ring, allegations and whatnot, and people got turned off of it. So, obviously, their relationship with Epic, Record end, Epic Records ended. It was probably only a two-album deal anyway. But in uh, 1993, um, they end up uh, doing a deal with Arista Records, which was the offshoot label from Columbia that was started by Clive Davis. And we get WrestleMania, the album, which is just awful. Have you uh, heard this one, Jonah? Uh, no. Oh, no. You're, you're, you're lucky. <laughs> okay. Did you know that before he got his start on American Idol, Simon Cowell, while he was an A&R at Arista Records, was deemed executive producer of this piece of garbage? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was uh, one of his assignments, you know, starting out in the biz. And, uh, oh my God, I don't know how much actual say he had on the album, but he is listed 
with about five other people as producers. <laughs> so, oh my god. The WrestleMania theme song they used from WrestleMania 10 to 14, that's from this album. Oh, word, okay. So that's probably the only song you've ever heard, but if here's a real bizarre thing. I don't know if people were asleep at the wheel or what. <laughs> But the WrestleMania theme starts off with the singer going, Are you ready for the Survivor Series? <laughs> How convenient. To, to this day, I don't understand why that's there. But uh, like I said, this album is really dated, cheesy, and it's awful. Some of the superstars sing over their themes, and I use that term very loosely because they more or less just sing a verse or give god-awful spoken word parts. This includes Mr. Perfect, The Undertaker, yes, The Undertaker, <laughs> and Bret Hart trying to do like uh, this this ballad poem while doing spoken word. It, oh my god, it is just a train wreck. Oh jeez, what? Uh, yeah, yeah. Once again, Jonah... If you're really curious and having morbid thoughts, you could probably check this out on YouTube. However, I don't highly recommend it. <laughs> <laughs> and when WWE would do a bunch of re-releases and anthologies later on, and when they would get their music or a lot of it on Spotify, this album, well, I'm sure some of it had to do with the master rights to Arista, but... I, th this album has kind of been erased from history and with good reason, <laughs> to say the least. <laughs> so the next time WWE would release music, uh, things actually would get kind of interesting. As in uh, fall of 1996, they would release the Full Metal album. To me, this had a lot of superstar themes of the day, including like Shawn Michaels and Bret Hart, Undertaker. And uh, Jeff Jarrett's old country theme, famously sung by the road dog Jesse James when he was the roadie. Yeah. But um, this album, the packaging and stuff is a real eyesore, but there's some cool songs on here. And the two themes of Monday Night Raw we would hear throughout the Attitude Era both appear on this album as... Um, Thorn in Your Eye, which would be the Raw theme in 97-98 and from 99 to 2002. They would basically play two different parts of the song, which was real cool. And We're All Together Now, which is the guitar music you would hear while the pyro was going off and when they would come back from commercial break. Two very rugged, badass, heavy metal songs which would eventually usher in um, WWE's Attitude Era, which would give rise to The Rock, Steve Austin, and completely change the face of the business. Those two songs, cool to listen to and highly influential. And just for trivia's sake, you want to know who plays on those songs? Ew. Okay, we're all together now. You never would hear the vocals on TV, but on the album version... John Oliva of Sabotage and Trans-Siberian Orchestra fame does the lead vocals, which is awesome. Wow. The guitars are played by two New Yorkers, Kenny Hickey of Typo Negative and Scott Ian of Anthrax. Oh my God. Yeah. 
Gary Maskill, the bass player of longtime New York band Propane, he does the bass on this. And Tim Maller, the longtime drummer of New Jersey's Overkill, comprises this band. Um, two other vocalists tackled Thorn in Your Eye, but uh, I wasn't familiar with them and their names escape me right now. But it was a very much needed shift in direction, and it was the perfect way to usher in the Attitude Era, which Jonah we both know, was born out of a little promotion in Philadelphia called Extreme Championship Wrestling. And right now, I want to talk about some of the music in ECW because I feel it is quite important. I'd say so too, and I just want to say, um, Paul Heyman, you fucking genius, you. Thank you for everything you've done. Absolutely. The iconic... um, ECW theme, which you know you may still hear on occasion to this day once in a while, was made by a guy by the name of Harry Slash. Now, I can't say I know too much about him, but he wrote that, wrote theme music for Sabu, and a couple of the other the ECW mainstays. Unfortunately, like, you know, much like a lot of other older music, I don't know if a lot of that music carried over to the old episodes on the WWE Network, but he wrote some really cool material. Some of the other iconic themes of ECW was uh, Raven came out to Offsprings Come Out and Play. Lance Storm <clears throat> came out to a White Zombie remix. Just Incredible had Snap Your Fingers, Snap Your Neck by Prong, which was just a perfect fit for him. Rob Van Dam used Pantera's Walk, which always got the crowd going and I think gave that song a bit of a second wind and is why it's so big like today. All these years later, the best one out of them all had to have been uh, the Sandman taking like good six minutes or so to get to the ring, chugging beers to Metallica's inner Sandman. Doesn't get much better than that. Oh, it's brilliant. Yeah. And uh, here's another example of me discovering material. When Shane Douglas was in ECW, he had this cool theme song that I didn't recognize And I found out later on he was using Perfect Strangers by Deep Purple. And that got me into that era of Purple and into that album. So that was a real cool gateway. And the gangster New Jack, he used to come out and bash people with weapons to the rap song Natural Born Killers. I do not for the life of me remember who does that song, but it was so hard and badass and it fit him perfectly. And on a more absurd note, one of my favorite ECW themes was uh, the late great Balls Mahoney who came out to Big Balls by ACDC. Nice. <laughs> and the whole crowd would sing along. And I also cannot forget a couple of others. Bam Bam Bigelow would come out to uh, the zoo by the Scorpions. But actually, no. They, they actually recorded a version covered by Bruce Dickinson and his solo band. And it was really cool. And... Uh, Bam Bam would use that, and uh, Taz, even though this would get remixed by Harry Slash later on, he used to come out to War Machine by Kiss, and it was just such an oddball of a choice of a song, but it just seemed to fit him perfectly. Yeah, seems about right. Is there any other ECW themes I'm forgetting, or did you um, not watch that nearly as much as I did? I never really paid attention much to like the theme music aspect 
aspect of that as opposed to like remembering some awesome matches from yeah. that time. Yeah. Well, so on some older ECW broadcasts, the audio quality is so bad that sometimes you can't even really pick up the entrance music to say the least. And um when they used to bring in guys from other random territories, they would just come out to like random Metallica or White Zombie songs because like I can't remember who used this analogy, whether it was Paul Heyman or Tommy Dreamer. Oh, and by the way, Dreamer used to come out to Man in the Box by Alice in Chains, and that became iconic for him as well. Um, oh, hell yeah. They said that ECW was grunge, and the rest of the wrestling business was hair metal. That is a very good analogy. It is, because not only was it outlaw and counterculture... They wanted their music to reflect that as well. And I think the reason that a lot of the music is dubbed over on the network now is, you know, Paul Heyman didn't give a shit about paying out licensing fees or anything like that. So if a guy wanted to use a song and they had access to it, they'd just play it. <laughs> they didn't care back then. It was the Wild well, West. I mean, I mean, kind of not really somewhat to do with the same thing. Um, back in, back in like, 2002 when Hulk Hogan had returned to WWE yep. his theme song after he split with the NWO was Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix yep. which now on the WWE Network they dub over yep and uh, I'm going to talk about that very shortly as there's a pretty kind of a crazy story behind that one uh, believe it or not but uh, the other big wrestling promotion of our lifetime was WCW and uh Jimmy Hart went there with Hulk Hogan in the mid-90s, and Jimmy would write a lot of their theme music, some, some of it good, some of it not so much. And before that, in the early 90s, Michael Hayes of the Freebirds uh, fame was there, and they tried writing their own in-house music for their superstars, but unfortunately a lot of it was awful. <laughs> Michael Hayes... Yeah. I, yeah. I remember Michael Hayes singing... Um, Dustin Rhodes, like before he became Gold Dust, he he had this country song called The Natural, which was sung by Michael Hayes. It's pretty bad. Hayes also penned his own Freebird ripoff called Freebirds Forever. <laughs> and it was kind of lame. And speaking of the Freebirds, WCW managed to completely kill their badass aura in the early 90s as they repackaged them as the new Freebirds, because I think like one or two of the guys left and then they put Michael with uh, Jimmy Garvin, I think, because they were the only remaining Freebirds members left. Well, I watched an old Clash of the Champions show on the network a while back and they introduced the new Freebirds and it's Michael Hayes and Jimmy Garvin doing this god-awful rockabilly shtick. And they're, and they're singing their theme on the way to the ring with these headset mics. And the crowd is just completely sitting on their hands. They're like, this isn't the Freebirds. What the fuck is this? And I don't think the gimmick was seen ever again after that. Uh, oh, fuck. And speaking of which, I just thought of this on the spot. While WWE was in a transition phase before the Attitude Era and trying to get their act together... The uh, the tag team of the Smoking Guns broke up, and they were trying to find something to do for Billy Gunn, so they put him with the Honky Tonk Man as a manager, and they turned him into Rockabilly. <laughs> oh, yeah. 
And if you ever watch the entrance or listen to the theme, it is one of the worst train wreck gimmicks, I think, of all time. And Billy hated, like, every single moment of it. So I just thought it, it, the new the new Freebirds made me think of it. So that's why I brought it up. But um, in the early 90s, some of the WCW themes were so bad. Like, um, Sting came out to a song, I shit you not, if you haven't heard it, called A Man Called Sting. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, oh yeah, yeah, go look it up and listen to it, you're going to be like, what the hell is this? And uh, the Steiner brothers came out to Steiner line, but the worst one that I think I ever heard was when, um, oh, oh, there's a couple actually in this category, Ricky Steamboat came out to some like, James Taylor sounding song, and the lyrics were about him being a family man, and it, it couldn't have made him look like any more of a bigger wimp. <laughs> Oh my god. But to cap off your day, Jonah, and I know you're going to look it up like after we're done recording today, you need to hear Don't Step to Ron, which is a rap song done by Ron Simmons. What? Oh yeah, yeah, it is, uh, it's something else. <laughs> damn. Yeah, damn is right. But uh, <laughs> some of WCW theme songs were okay. However, they were they were guilty of just randomly giving guys music from like the stock music library. Like I remember Chris Jericho told a hilarious story of when he went to WCW and he didn't know what theme song he was getting or whatever, but like I think he came into the ring and his uh entrance wasn't televised or whatever, but he went back and watched it on TV and he noticed he was coming out to the same music that TNT was using underneath their NBA highlights for that night. <laughs> oh my god. So he, he, in his own words, he said he came out to basketball cuts number nine. <laughs> <laughs> and then eventually, nice. they would start writing songs that were kind of rip-offs to other songs. Like, Raven came out to a song that sounded suspiciously like... Nirvana's Come As You Are. And even though I really enjoy this, Diamond Dallas Page came out to the Smells Like Teen Spirit knockoff. And you want to hear something what's weird, Jonah? Both of those Bye. themes are dubbed over on the network, even though they're not the original songs. But they're like versions of them. Isn't that weird? A little bit of a head-scratcher, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Anyway... But WCW was with notorious for that. But the one time they got it right, though, like you mentioned earlier, is when Hulk Hogan did the iconic uh, turn as a bad guy and joined the NWO and dressed in black, became Hollywood Hogan, and came out to Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. So it's no secret that when Hulk Hogan went to WCW, he signed, like, the shrewdest contract of all time. And... Nobody could fuck with him in his contract. And if they did, he would basically take them to court. So he had almost... Yeah, I was basically proving just how much of an egotistical bastard Hogan really is. Yeah, and there wasn't an authority figure like a Vince McMahon to stop him, basically. Yeah. So Hogan decided with this new character, he wanted to come out to Jimi Hendrix. And... WCW Turner approached the estate of Hendrix and I don't remember the official price tag, but 
to acquire the rights for him to come out to Voodoo Child Slight Return, they paid somewhere in the six to seven figure territory for the rights to that song. Jesus! Well, number one, it was Ted Turner's endless supply of money at the time, and number two, if Hulk Hogan asked for something back then, he got it. (laughs) And this is why you obviously don't hear it on the WWE Network anymore. (laughs) Yeah, that seems about right. Just a tad expensive, I would say. A couple of other funny things about WCW is they had a lot of music-based gimmicks, like the Disco Inferno, (laughs) you know. Um, Conan, he would come out, he did his own rap video, and then him and Disco Inferno had a really stupid feud over it. Um, There was a gimmick which I think started out really well, but kind of fell on its ass like the rest of the product, and that was the three count, who were three young guys. Yeah. Yeah. Like, they were uh, doing parodies of NSYNC and the Backstreet Boys, and they had a really good thing going on, but of course they got put in some god-awful storylines, including the immortal alliance of the three-count and former street fighter and MMA star Tank Abbott, (laughs) who would eventually take over his vocal duties for the three-count and could not sing worth a shit. God, man, I remember seeing, like, Three Count was in, like, Three Count was basically 3MB years before 3MB. Yes. And and basically they were in a storyline where they, it culminated in a ladder match at a pay-per-view yes. in Vancouver, which the winner would receive a recording contract. No, Yeah, and I believe what they hung from the top of the ladder was a gold record. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And just to show what nonsense their storylines were at the time, the match ended when Tank Abbott, who wasn't even in the match, climbed the ladder and took the record. (laughs) 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 Yeah, and then that's when he started singing, and oh man, it was... You should YouTube that one too, because it's ridiculous, beyond belief. And uh, one other thing about WCW I should point out too is, uh, actually I got a couple of things here I just thought of, is there was a really big storyline in 1999 that exposed just how out of touch the company was with their audience, and it was all centered around music. Um, Somebody signed a stupid fucking deal to bring in uh, the rapper Master P in his entourage into WCW and he was going to align himself with some wrestlers and stuff. And the whole thing was overpriced and overblown. And, uh, they ran a show at the Superdome in new Orleans, which is his hometown. And it was like three quarters empty because they were, you know, running a TV show in a stadium, which like, I don't understand that one. (laughs) But anyway, um, in the weeks prior, Kurt Hennig, Mr. formerly Mr. Perfect, who was a big country fan, aligned himself with a couple of wrestlers and started doing this gimmick where he sang country music. And they were going to be put into a feud with these wrestlers who were aligned with Master P. I don't even remember who it was at this point in time. But they had a big showdown in New Orleans. And a week prior, Kurt Hennig and his group performed a song called Rap is Crap a country song and the people cheered it 
and they were supposed to be the bad guys. But in the Deep South, I guess there was a lot of people who didn't like, you know, the rise of the hip-hop movements in, like, Atlanta and New Orleans and wanted to stick to their country. And that was the WCW audience. And there was a segment where, I can't remember, this may have even involved a birthday cake, where Master P and his crew crashed a party. Um, Yeah, this uh, faction Kurt Hennig was in was called the West Texas Rednecks, and yet he was from Minnesota. Go figure. (laughs) But anyway... I just remember Master P and these guys crashed the segment and they were trying to get the crowd into it and the crowd was so dead. And then after that, the whole storyline got abandoned and then the, the West Texas Rednecks continued the rest of their run as good guys. It was just a an epic train wreck around a music-based feud that I fondly remember. Oh my God. But I will say this, in the late 90s, WCW actually did something about some of this awful music, and uh, they released an album in the early 2000s. I don't remember the name of it, but there's actually some good stuff on there. And because of licensing and all that, you won't hear some of it on the network, unfortunately. But uh, they had uh, Slayer cut a song for it called Here Comes the Pain, which would end up on their God Hates Us All album, and it would become the opening music for WCW Thunder. And unfortunately, because of that association, they couldn't really use that music for anything else because I thought it would have been the perfect entrance theme for Brock Lesnar. Especially with the Here Comes the Pain. Yeah, yeah that was his, his, his phrase, his slogan for a while. And I could totally see Brock sinking his entrance to it, but it wasn't meant to be. And after having some wishy-washy themes... There was a brief run where Sting came out to a live rendition of Metallica's Seek and Destroy. And it was so badass. And (laughs) I wish they could have done it again, but they obviously couldn't. So, I mean, WCW, very hit and miss with their music. But, uh, Jonah, before we end this discussion and we move into our Roach section and uh, just have a very brief discussion about the homework, I want to dedicate... a special section to music at WrestleMania because WrestleMania has grown to the point where artists will be featured either as performers or as a part of the show. And WrestleMania doesn't only have like one theme song now, it has like four. So I want to explain times when they did it right and when they did it wrong. So what are some of your favorite music memories from just, just WrestleMania? Um, that's a good question. Off the top of my head, uh, I could say I really enjoyed when Randy Orton and Bray Wyatt had bands playing their theme songs at WrestleMania 30. Those were really good. Yes, I agree. Those were really awesome. Um, and I, I could also say that I enjoyed the idea that um, when The Rock and Cena did their first main event, mm. how they had, um, I think it was like uh, Flowrider and and uh, Machine Gun Kelly doing their theme songs. And I mean, that was, that's in, in theory pretty cool. Yeah. Um, given the scope of the fact that it was a year in the making. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, 
off the top of my head, I could say those are two that, that come to mind. And also, whenever Motorhead did Triple H's theme. Absolutely. Um, I'll be bringing that one up for sure. Here's here's a few I had from watching over the years. Um, WrestleMania two, the Ray Charles rendition of America the Beautiful might as well be my favorite. It's no, so enough. good. Oh, so good. And uh, we already talked about Aretha Franklin. I like that one. Uh, here's one where I felt they got it wrong. WrestleMania five. This isn't much talked about or remembered, but in the middle of the show, there's a live performance in the ring from Run DMC. Okay. And wow. Okay. Not only does the PA sound like shit, but you remember this was at uh, the the Trump. Uh, Casino and yeah, yeah, Trump Plaza, yeah, and a lot of people, at least in the front rows of the audience, are Trump and his high rolling friends. And I think seeing somebody like Run DMC, it kind of goes over their heads, so the crowd's kind of flat for them. But I think with in front of a different audience with a better PA, they would have done a lot better. Yeah, that's fair enough to say. WrestleMania six. Canadian singer Robert Goulet does the national anthem, and I don't know why. I think Jesse Ventura was pulling a rib on Gorilla Monsoon in the announce booth because <laughs> at the very end of the anthem, Jesse goes, "Oh, now Monsoon, he sounds just like Axl Rose." Oh my! God. And, and then it's so obvious that Monsoon doesn't have a clue who Axl is. <laughs> And he's like, he's like, Axl Rose. He's like, yeah, yeah, Monsoon, Axl Rose of Guns N' Roses. And then Monsoon goes, oh, oh, yeah, that Axl Rose. (laughs) I swear. I swear it was, I swear it was just, yeah, I swear it was just Jesse pulling a joke on him. But uh, I got to give ultimate shout out to, to uh, another good rendition of America the Beautiful, Willie Nelson, WrestleMania 7. Oh, yeah. Classic. And there's also the infamous story. I don't know if you've heard this, Jonah, but uh, <laughs> the Nasty Boys who would win the, the tag team titles that night and who enjoy uh, an alcoholic beverage or two in their spare time ended up partying on Willie Bel- Nelson's bus that night and one of those tag team titles went missing and was never found. No kidding. Yeah, so... Uh, <laughs> That one belt you would see after that was a replacement one. <laughs> oh my god. That's fucking hilarious. Yeah. And I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but uh, I really love the inclusion of the DX band at WrestleMania 14 in Boston. Such an I hated the anthem that they did. Oh, you did, eh? I find it interesting. However... When I uh, when I watch the footage, the the crowd in you know super patriotic Boston turns on them really quickly. Oh hell yeah! Yeah. So what was what was your issue with that? I'm just curious. Uh, um, I don't know. I think for me, like, like here's the thing. It, it's kind of along the same lines of Fergie's anthem. Okay. In that it's just like just don't fuck with it, and they were like. It wasn't even like they were enough of a popular band that yeah. they could have done something cool. It was like, oh, they're the DX band, and they sound like the DX band. And what do I want to hear from the DX band? DX. Right. Nothing else. No offense. Yeah, fair enough. 
Now, I can't say I am much of a, a Limp Biscuit fan, but uh, I feel the promo video they used for Rock Austin for WrestleMania 17 is pretty much unbeatable to me. Well, WrestleMania 17 also is like one of those like golden pay-per-views oh, absolutely. That, that WWE were able to just get right. Same with with uh, WrestleMania 30 yep. and 19. Yeah, Biscuit also did the theme for WrestleMania 19. I didn't really like the song as much, but it, they still s- were able to sync the video to it real nicely. And at WrestleMania 19... I really get a kick out of the, the entrance they do for Undertaker because it's just so different for him and it's such an odd pairing, but I found that it worked. I think it's also, though, it worked because of the gimmick at the time. Oh, absolutely. And, um, yeah, like I said, that's a situation where normally I wouldn't be into a Limp Bizkit performance, but that particular situation, it was spot on. Here's a funny one for you. I don't know if I'd call this good or not, but... Uh, WrestleMania 2000, outside of a couple of matches, was a bit lackluster, okay? But one of the highlights for me was in the opening match, the Godfather, the pimp, was teaming up with D'Lo Brown, and they were doing the pimp gimmick at the time. And there was a release called uh, WWF Aggression, which was rap stars performing WWE superstar songs. And Ice-T did a song for the Godfather, and he rapped it live on the way to the ring for their entrance. And he just, this, this, the whole thing would like never fly today. And I just remember where one section in the song, he just goes, grab your bitches. <laughs> <laughs> just a total, total sign of the times right there. So I just thought I'd bring that up. Here's another uh, cool cool performance, Jonah. I was up in the 500 level for WrestleMania 18, okay? Oh, nice, okay. Um, this actually could have been a roach, but, you know, I won't use it. Long story short, it took us almost two hours to get into the building of the gate we were at. So okay. we got to our seats in the middle of sal- Saliva's performance that kicked off the show, okay? So I missed right. most of that. The other band that performed live on that show was Drowning Pool because they did uh, Tear Away for the theme song. Now, it's really cool. I saw Drowning Pool on the second stage in the parking lot of OzFest 2001, and I was really impressed with their performance. About two to three weeks after that is when Bodies just blew up, and they were like an overnight sensation. So they got booked for WrestleMania 18, so I saw them do Tearaway, and then they performed Triple H's theme song that night, and it sounded pretty cool, because they did their own version of it too, remember? Yeah, I remember. I didn't like that version too much. Yeah, I thought for the live aspect, though, it worked that night. and No, sure. It was, it was upsetting to me as less than four months later, their singer David Williams would end up dead on the tour bus at like in his late mid to late twenties. So, I mean, I got to see one of his last like public performances, I think. So, I mean, that's another crazy thing to think about when I think of music at WrestleMania. And now absolutely. We will bow down and give a shout out to motorhead who, uh, I have a funny story about their, uh, actually a couple of funny stories about their performance at WrestleMania 17. 
I was watching that at my friend's house and uh, a lot of people were inebriated, okay? Because I was just about to finish high school uh, yeah. at that point in time. And we were watching that entrance and one guy sp- spoke up and said, Hey, hey, I wonder if we're going to see Limp Bizkit do Undertaker's performance. And then it didn't happen. And then the guy's like, Oh, you know what? They're going to get Lemmy to do it. Can you just imagine Lemmy singing, Rollin', 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 Rollin'? <laughs> and there was like 25 of us just laughing our ass off for like 10 minutes at that visual. <laughs> and a couple of Christmases ago, I got the Lemmy documentary on Blu-ray for as a present. And there's a lot of bonus features. And uh, Triple H got interviewed in this documentary. And there's a deleted scene. Oh, yeah. There's a deleted scene where they interview him and he talks about when they were performing at WrestleMania 17, they got called by the production crew to do rehearsal like early in the morning and the guys in Motorhead were tired and they were in a bad mood and apparently the rehearsal was so bad that uh, WWE uh, technical director Kevin Dunn almost canceled the performance and said, yeah, we can't have these guys performing. So then um, they found uh, Motorhead's manager, Todd Singerman, and uh, Kevin Dunn and Hunter tracked him down and asked, are these guys going to be okay for tonight? And Singerman said, yeah, don't worry. Listen, this is rough right now, but they're going to show up. And Hunter remembers in the Astrodome walking by Motorhead's dressing room just completely full of booze and whatnot. And he said um, after that morning rehearsal that was a disaster they went back to bed and they woke up and then they said before they were about ready to go on stage he said all the booze had been drunk clean and they were good to go and the rest is history (laughs) oh my god yeah (laughs) and then they would come back and they would perform at i think wrestlemania 21 and uh they would go on to write with the aid of jim johnston two other unbelievably sick themes involving triple h that being the King of Kings, and my personal favorite, the theme for Evolution, Line in the Sand. Yeah, no, I remember that theme song, too. It's, uh, it's fucking dope as shit. Yeah, and uh, the next guy I want to talk about who's had his fair share of contributions is uh, Kid Rock. He's contributed several themes to WrestleMania, including this year's, and he did a performance at WrestleMania 25, and he's going into the Hall of Fame this year, and... Uh, Kid Rock isn't the most popular guy in the world, but I gotta admit, Jonah, I'm kind of happy to see this. Um, well, it, it gives him some degree of credibility. I mean, considering the fact that you know he was quote unquote running for Senate. <laughs> yeah, that was pretty short lived, wasn't it? Yeah. And uh, with that being said, and. Of course, since the unfortunate passing of Lemmy, I think Motorhead should go in the WWE Hall of Fame maybe next year, wouldn't you say? Yes. For the celebrity ring. If Kid Rock can get in, Motorhead can as well. Which brings me to my final inclusion of WrestleMania, and uh, that is, of course, the performance at MetLife Stadium of Living Color. Jonah, I understand you were a fan of that, right? Hell yeah. No, I... Anyone who can't say they can't kick it anymore, just look at that, man. Oh, they are incredible. And if I ever get the chance to see them live, I am so there, to say the least. And, oh, uh, hell yeah, man. A couple they of, are like funk metal pioneers. Oh, yeah. 
couple of funny stories though just before we get into the roach about that is uh first one being i heard um a very lengthy interview with Vernon reed the guitar player on a podcast uh, late last year and he was talking about that performance and stuff and uh Obviously, the like 80,000 or just under at MetLife Stadium was the biggest crowd Living Color has ever played in front of. Same with Motorhead at the Astrodome, right? So, right. Um, but he was, uh, Vernon Reeds summed up his WrestleMania experience by saying that he was so floored by the backstage catering. <laughs> because <laughs> here's a guy who's used to playing theaters and small clubs and stuff, right? And he said that at WrestleMania, he said, if you wanted to eat it like off of a buffet, it was there. He says, you could see everything. And he says, that's when it hit me that this is a really huge deal that we're performing at. Yeah, geez, no kidding. And another funny story, okay. In spring of 2013, I'll never know how I found this, but you remember the iconic CM Punk Best in the World shirt? And you know how I own one? Yeah. Okay, well... No word of a lie. I bought that at a thrift store for four ninety nine. I just happened to find it there when Punk was like still in his prime, and oh man, it was like the steal of the century. So anyway, I went out to the bar here in my city that used to show pay per views with my buddy, and I was wearing the the best in the world shirt. And then I was sitting down, and we were ordering beers, and I said to him, Hey, wouldn't it be something if Living Color came in and performed tonight? Because, you know, they are in the New York, New Jersey area after all. And then when they announced them and showed them on the screen, I just popped and gave a standing ovation. I'm like, this is the coolest shit ever. Yeah, no, and and rightfully so, especially since, like, CM Punk should have main evented with Rock and Cena that year. Yes. If nothing else, he had Matt of the night, oh. Taker, and he got Living Color to do his fucking entrance theme. That guy's a badass. I don't care what anyone says. Much agreed. And another tidbit Vernon Reed dropped in the podcast I listened to was that uh, apparently Punk chose that as his new theme song because he used to go up to bat to Cult of Personality on his Little League team, apparently. No kidding! Yeah, like, how cool is that? Like... <laughs> And, and personally, I prefer that a thousand times more than the theme he had before. So, okay. I mean, like, if, if anything, that just rejuvenated him that much more, I think. Yeah, I really like the previous Kill Switch theme, but I think Living Color worked that much better for him. I'll agree to that for sure. Yeah, totally. All right, so... If you weren't a wrestling fan, I really hope you got something out of this discussion. Uh, We had a lot of fun doing it, and um, WrestleMania, the big show, will have aired the night before this, and uh, I'm going to a party for it, so I'll definitely have had a good time. I'm going to be on a flight while it's happening, so I'll have to figure out the results afterwards. Oh, that's too bad you couldn't watch it while you were in Vegas somehow, because that'd be pretty badass, I think. But you know what? It's okay. There's been years like I haven't seen WrestleMania, and yeah. it's fun. Like I'd say, like I mean, thirty I saw live, yeah, and then thirty-one I didn't because I was pissed off about the booking prior to the pay-per-view, even though it ended understandable. up being fantastic. Understandable, and yes. Then thirty-two was was dog shit, in my opinion. <laughs> Yeah, that that was the year when they were ravaged by injuries on the roster, too. So, I mean, a lot of it was really stitched together. 
Yeah, it also didn't help that that show, I think, ran close to, like, the five-and-a-half, six-hour mark. Like, that would burn out anybody. <laughs> yeah, and it didn't help either that it's like, okay, nobody wanted to see Roman Reigns win, and everyone knew Roman Reigns was going to win. Yep, that's just what they get stuck with, unfortunately, sometimes. But uh, I have high hopes for this year's WrestleMania, and hopefully it delivered. And uh, Jonah... You have the roach on this edition of the dispensary. It's not WrestleMania 32, is it? No. Okay. It's something related to this year's WrestleMania. Oh. Okay, go ahead. I, I think I might know where you're going with this, but go ahead. All right. Well, my roach for this week is Ronda Rousey. Oh, okay. Go, 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 go for it. Well, what did you think I was going to do? I thought you were going to do about the uh, Moolah Battle Royal and the name change and Snickers threatening to pull out and all that. Oh, whatever. You know what? <laughs> she could have been a cunt for all I know. And you know what? I don't really care. They could have easily chosen anyone else. Yeah. And so they backed themselves into a corner. Okay. But my roach this week is Ronda Rousey, and for good reason. And yeah. I'll explain why. So, um... Everyone knows Ronda Rousey as probably the reason why female MMA was even given any eyes to begin with. Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. No doubt. And up until the last two fights that she had had, no one could top her. Yep. No one could top her. And you know what? Everybody in their career has some losses. Everybody has their rough period where, you know, they're down and out for the count. And then they make they either make a comeback or they retire from the sport. And that's perfectly reasonable. But first off, I, I thought one loss, okay, if she's able to do it a second, if she's able to come back a second time, um, then she will have still earned my respect. She got beaten even worse. Yep. Okay, fine. So, here, here's the problem I have with that. So, it's bad enough that it's like you can see the flaws in her fighting style for that fight, especially since she was beaten so horribly mm-hmm. uh, in that fight. Um, so, what she could have done, at, at least in my opinion, if she had any passion still for the UFC, which it clearly seems like she doesn't, um, she could have gone to a different camp, trained, and come back even more of a badass. And I would have still had respect for her because, you know what, um, Kat Zigano, let's say, um, got beaten in 13 seconds by Ronda Rousey, came back stronger than ever, you know? So mm. this shit happened. So mm. I think I was really pissed off when I heard she was coming to WWE. Mm. And not because of her star power or anything. If anything, like, her star power is the reason why eyes are being put on the product, and I get that. But, um, my issue with it is the fact that, um, it seems like such a demotion down compared to a Brock Lesnar who had already been in WWE who came back like a fucking badass. Yep, yeah, for sure. You know? So for Ronda Rousey, it's, it's bad enough she's coming back and it feels like a demotion. And then on top of that, you know, we're not talking about MMA, which is just, you know, fight it out as much 
blood and see who wins. Yep. You know, we're talking about a scripted um, entertainment show week to week, and her character is just fucking boring as wood. I don't mm. care. Mm, okay. You know? Yeah. So, so the thing is, for me, it's like, okay, she has enough star power that they will put a title on her if they want to. Yep. Like, they did it with Brock Lesnar, they'll do it with her, that doesn't surprise me. It's, and it's a shame given the fact that there are full-time uh, women on the roster, especially now that the women's roster has become so much more vibrant and exciting yep. in the past couple years. Yeah. You know? Yep. So, what I think really pissed that, you know, Ronda Rousey should be doing so much more. And I'm sure she's making boatloads of money off this deal, and kudos to her that she is making the amount of money that she is. But it's just like, I don't care. Hmm. That's interesting. Like, if she came to WWE when she was in her prime, yeah. that would be so huge, because then you're talking about someone who's at, on top of the world in UFC and WWE, because keep in mind, it's not like Brock Lesnar wasn't allowed to do a one-off fight for UFC while he was in WWE. Right. But, but if Ronda were to do that while she was on top of the world, it would mean so much more compared to now, because now I just don't care. Understandable. I mean, I think whatever happens, this move will be like a great success. But uh, I will bring this up. I think it would have been even hotter, like, if she did something after her involvement at WrestleMania 31. That probably would have been a better time to strike. Oh, yeah, especially with The Rock. And are you going to tell you something about WWE right now? I check out the pay-per-views, and I still like them, but the TV, or most of it, to me, is running through the motions, and therefore... I pick and choose the highlights on demand, what I watch, and I ignore like 80% of it. So you being upset about her having a bland character, I totally see that. And unfortunately, they do it to so many people, and I wish somebody would break that mold again, you know? Yeah, no, I hear that, man. You know, it's, 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 like, why, um, it's, it's like why Roman Reigns keeps getting pushed. Yeah. You know, it's not like he's not talented, but yep. it's like that ship had sailed a long time ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I don't fully disagree with that. And uh, Jonah, you follow MMA a lot more than I do. Um, I don't completely with ev- agree with everything you've just said, but your your take on it is very fascinating, though, and uh, we'll leave it at that. So uh, just before we go, um, due to the short turnaround of the recording time, uh, we don't have our homework we will have it for you on the next episode and um the person involved in that tom waits story i wanted to talk about well it turns out they're moving this weekend so i don't want to bother them just yet and uh (laughs) we'll try and get that for you on the next episode but jonah in regards to our wrestling theme if you care to uh (laughs) indulge for you and i how about for a bonus homework assignment, we both check out one song each from the Randy Savage rap album. Oh my god, kill me. <laughs> <laughs> kill me, man. Like, I mean, I remember seeing a video of him promoting that album, and one of the tracks is like a 
diss track to Hulk Hogan. Yeah, yeah. It's just like, dude, you got better things to do with your time. You got cocaine, you got hookers. Move the fuck on, bro. <laughs> he also performed in a club live. And I use that term loosely. And, uh... Apparently, during the second or third song, his lip sync track like started to skip on him, and he just slammed the mic down and walked off the stage. That was the end of the show. <laughs> yeah. Hey, listen, I love oh, Randy as a performer. Hilarious. I love Randy as a performer, and I miss him, but some of the things he did outside the ring were a little nutty. Let's call it for what it is. You know what's actually hilarious? I got a funny story. Yeah. So, um, in, terms of, uh, in terms of Randy Savage... Um, I knew, I know this guy. So the pile driver poster that I mentioned earlier before yeah. was given to me by a family friend who used to tour with Ricky Steamboat. Oh. Um, selling posters. Oh, okay. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. And I ended up getting to meet, uh, Ricky Steamboat very briefly oh, because awesome. of this dude. Awesome. Yeah. 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 It was really sick. She's still built like a brick shit house. Anyways. Yeah. So. He was telling me a funny story about how he was backstage at WrestleMania three. Yep. And he was chilling with Steamboat and he was and Savage because they had just had their match. Yeah, yeah. And they were they were celebrating backstage because of how awesome that match was and how much they knew about how awesome that match yep. was. Yep. And Hogan got backstage and did not speak to Randy Savage or Ricky Steamboat. Yep. And and my and the buddy asked why, and Randy's like, because he knew we stole the show. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I totally believe that, man. That's awesome. Yeah. No, it was just fascinating, especially since you think, like, he got the biggest pop in the night slamming Andre, but he knew he didn't have anywhere near as good a match. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> well, on that note, that's hard to top, and... Uh, we are plum out of time. Thanks for doing this before your uh, your hiatus, and uh, have fun and stay safe in Vegas, my man. Thank you very much. Yes, the dispensary is now closed. Closed. closed.